Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning everybody, Annie here for this week's edition of Solidarity Breakfast. Beautiful spring has arrived, it's so lovely out there. And today we've got lots of things to dish up. To, um, for your enjoyment, for your predilection this morning. We're going to take you to one of the speakers at the recent IPAN conference, that's uh, Independent Peaceful Australian Network. They had a fantastic uh, conference last weekend and uh, we're going to first cab off the rank is going to be James O'Neill. He's a former academic and consultant at the UN Economic Commission for Europe. If you've been wondering about uh, the South Sea the South China Sea debacle that's edging towards some sort of sense of disaster, impending disaster, then uh, listen up because James O'Neill gives a really interesting discussion around what's going on in the South China Sea as well as uh, talking about Australia's connection to America and how it is uh, an obstacle for improving the bilateral relationship with China. Quite interesting stuff, very important, very pertinent. And I was able to have a little talk with him after his speech, so we get two bites of the cherry there. Later on, we're going to uh, remember Allende. Uh, There was a very moving uh, remembrance on uh, to the events of September the 11th, 1973 in Chile, the murder of uh, Allende, the democratically uh, elected uh, head of state, uh, a coup inspired by the Americans and uh, financed by the Americans. Uh, remembered here at Trades Hall on uh uh, recently to uh, commemorate the date. And uh, we also are going to hopefully have enough time to, after Kevin, uh, this is the week that was, we're going to have, uh, we've got a couple of things, but uh, I'm not sure I've got enough time. But one of them is uh, Anitra Nelson. Uh, she gave a talk about, very small talk, but a very powerful talk about uh, the... Uh, relevance of Marxism. We've been on this topic because, of course, this is a anniversary year for the first edition, uh, first uh, volume of Das Kapital, 150 years, but also the year of the uh, an important date for the uh, Russian Revolution, which itself is important in the uh, fight for uh, workers establishing their self 
belief and uh, control of in a powerful way within society the ongoing conversation. Uh, also a little snippet from uh, what's going on in Catalan, uh, very important business going on in Catalan, which if you had been listening to Friday Breakfast, you would have heard uh, that uh, the Spanish state has uh, stepped in ahead of the October the 1st uh, vote about uh, uh, separation, Catalan separation from the uh, Spanish uh, state, uh, the government has preempted that vote and uh, put its foot down. So uh, we've got uh, Dick Nicol, uh, who was speaking to Lalitha Chalaya about what's going on in Barcelona at right at this moment. Big deal stuff. Anyway, uh, before we move on, uh, let's have an important message. Hello? Listen, I had a great idea. Male chauvinist pig versus hairy-legged feminist. You're still a feminist, right? I'm a tennis player who happens to be a woman. The battle you've all been waiting to see. The battle of the sexes. You want to see it, right? Then get along and support 3CR at the Palace Withgarth Cinemas, 89 High Street, Northcote, on Thursday, October 5th, from 6.30pm. For a screening of Battle of the Sexes. You're offering the men's winner eight times what you're offering the women's winner. The men are simply more exciting to watch. It's just biology. <laughs> the story of the infamous tennis match between Billie Jean King and Bobby Riggs. Tickets are $25 and $20 concession. You can purchase online at 3cr.org.au, direct from the station at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy, or by phoning 9419 8377 during business hours. All funds raised go to Keeping 3CR on Air. Battle of the Sexes screening, Thursday, October the 5th from 6.30pm. Does she have the nerve? Call Barbie. Time it's on. Yeah, go down and meet your 3CR compatriots down at the Whiskars, October the 5th. Be part of it or be out of it. (laughs) Be part of uh, supporting 3CR, that's the intention. But we'll continue straight away. You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and we'll get on with the big mean business. We're going to talk here from James O'Neill. If you've been worrying about what's going on in the South China Sea, you're probably right. We now know that the decision to invade Afghanistan was in fact made in July 2001, two months before the events of 9-11 provided its ostensible justification. We also know that the reason for the invasion followed upon the refusal of the Afghan government to grant pipeline rights to an American consortium of companies to bring oil and gas from the immensely rich Caspian Basin region. The actual terms used by the American negotiator in July 2001 to the Afghan government was, you have a choice. You can have a carpet load of gold or a carpet load of bombs. The contract was instead given to Bridas Corporation, an Argentinian company, and their contract was cancelled very shortly after the 2001 invasion. They got $500 million compensation from the American government by suing them in the American courts. That's never been reported in the Australian papers. Sixteen years later, the invading forces, including Australia, are still there. The only beneficiaries appear to be the military-industrial complex for whom, as Gore Vidal pointed out, Perpetual war means perpetual profit. And the CIA, who used the massive opium crop 
to finance the off-the-books clandestine operations around the world, as has long been documented, the golden triangle of opium in the 1960s and 1970s, Colombian cocaine up to and including the present time. The US Geological Survey did a survey of Afghanistan's resources uh, about um, six or seven years ago. They <coughs> determined that it was between one and three trillion dollars worth of unexploited resources in Afghanistan. And Trump, in, in his inimitable way, said uh, just a few weeks ago that that's a good reason to stay. With Iraq, it was the alleged possession of weapons of mass destruction. You will recall the hysteria generated by the Blair government about being only 15 minutes away from annihilation. The British government did at least hold an inquiry under Sir John Chilcott, results of which were a devastating expose of the lies that led to that war. Despite the best efforts in Australia in the campaign for an Iraq war inquiry in this country, both sides of Parliament here have steadfastly refused to emulate the British or the Dutch or the Canadians, all of whom produced damning reports about the decisions of the government of the day to join the American invasion of Iraq. The outcome of that wholly unnecessary and illegal war was the devastation of a country, well over a million deaths, four million persons forced into either exile internally or abroad, and an ongoing war with ISIS, the spawn of the original invasion. Australia not only joined that illegal war based on monstrous lies, more than 16 years later, we're still there, still committing war crimes, and so uncertain of the Iraqi government that all military personnel have been issued with diplomatic passports to maintain their immunity from prosecution. The Iraqi government has refused to sign the Status of Forces Agreement with Australia. Again, we know that the decision to invade Iraq was made at the very first cabinet meeting of, to use Arundhati Roy's wonderfully evocative phrase, Bush the Lesser, in January 2001. We also know that Vice President Cheney chaired a committee throughout 2001 and 2002 that drew up plans for the division of Iraq's oil assets between favoured oil companies, primarily American. In the case of Libya, Gaddafi was alleged to be killing his own people. Libya remains a broken state, having once had Africa's highest standard of living. Gaddafi's crime, apart from wanting Libya's people to actually share the benefits of its huge oil and gas reserves, had the temerity to be working towards replacing the US dollar as the medium of payment for its oil and gas. Saddam Hussein had similar ambitions for Iraq. Syria had friendly relations with the US until 2011, when Bashar al-Assad refused to allow Syria to be used for the transit of Qatari gas to Europe. The Americans wanted to use Qatari gas to replace Russian gas as Europe's main source of imported energy. Little or none of this is ever discussed in the mainstream media. Instead, we are always asked to believe that the US acts from the best of altruistic motives, 
ridding the world of loathsome dictators, bringing stability to a region, underwriting our security, and so on. I mention these brief examples because they provide an essential context for understanding what is going on in the South China Sea. Hi, I'm Aaron Patterson, and you're listening to 3CR. Yes, you are. You're listening to Solidarity Breakfast, and we're listening to James O'Neill, who's giving us a background to why it's uh, to the American uh, world, as they see it, and uh, why it's dangerous to be their bedfellow. Let's go on. The first point to note from the map is that there are a number of countries bordering the South China Sea, none of them either Australia or the United States. In fact, it is 13,000 kilometres from Ho Chi Minh City to Los Angeles and 6, 000, just under 6,800 kilometres from Ho Chi Minh City to Canberra. From Hainan Island, off the coast of uh, uh, China, it's 12,000 kilometres and 7,300 kilometres, respectively. In the same way that scepticism about the mainstream media's version of events in Afghanistan, Iraq, Libya and Syria should be the dominant mindset, so too is that the case with the South China Sea. We hear and read a great deal about China's alleged, I use these words in inverted commas, aggressiveness or assertiveness or bullying of its neighbours in the region. China's claims to maritime rights within what is commonly referred to the nine-dash line are the root of these allegations. I have never seen even a faint attempt by the mainstream media to put that claim in any sort of proper context. The the nine-dash line was first formulated in 1947 by the Chiang Kai-shek nationalist government that at the time ruled China. That was two years before the PRC even came into existence. In 1949, Chiang Kai-shek fled to what was then called Formosa, a Chinese island off the mainland coast. He survived there, what later became uh, the Republic of China, or Taiwan, because American warships patrolled the Formosa Strait and prevented the PRC from taking control of that part of China that had always been part of China. I refer to it as part of China because that is its official status. There is only one China, and that has been the case even in the Western media since Nixon dropped the absurdity of the two-China policy in 1972. Moreover, Taiwan refers to itself as being part of China, The disagreement between the two governments comes as to who should actually be running the show. It is one of the important reasons why the claims of the modern-day PRC and those of Taiwan are almost identical in respect of the nine-dash line. That simple fact is also barely acknowledged, if at all, in the mainstream media. The similarities do not end with their having essentially identical claims to rights within the nine-dash line. Taiwan claims rights to the Spratly Islands, which you see there a long, long way south of Taiwan, and also the Paracel Islands up and to the left of the Spratlys. 
as well as part of the Macclesfield Bank, which is part of the Scarborough Shoal, which you can see off to the right, running parallel with the coast of the Philippines. <laughs> Taiwan maintains a military base on the island of Pratos in the Spratlys Group. The distance from Taiwan to, to Pratos is just under 2,000 kilometres. Taiwan's military activities on the island and in the surrounding sea are never mentioned in the Australian mainstream media. The Spratlys are the most contested group of largely rocky outcrops in the whole of the South China Sea. They are claimed in whole by the PRC, by Taiwan and by Vietnam and claimed in part by Brunei, Malaysia and the Philippines. The Scarborough Shoal, geographically closest to the Philippines, is claimed by the Philippines, by Taiwan and by the PRC. And it was the Philippines' claim to the Scarborough Shoal that was brought before an arbitration hearing pursuant to Annex 7 of the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea. I'll call it UNCLOS for short. Although the Philippines was the applicant, no Filipino lawyer actually took part in the hearing, which was conducted entirely by British and American lawyers. A further irony was that the United States, which has never signed nor ratified UNCLOS, is the one most likely to demand its rights under freedom of navigation operations. China neither participated in the arbitration process, nor did it recognise the outcome, although China is a party to UNCLOS. Taiwan also does not accept the ruling, although again that is never mentioned in the Australian mainstream media. Hi, this is Rafiv Ziada and you're listening to 3CR pro-Palestinian happily proud radio. Yes, you are. And we're listening to a man who can unravel what's going on diplomatically and uh, is uh, having a great deal of effect on uh, ongoing politics between Australia and America and the world at the moment, James O'Neill. He's a former academic and consultant at the UN Economic Commission for Europe in Geneva. He was at the IPAN summit, which was on a couple a weekend ago, and uh, we're going to go on to hear what he, he has to say about... What's going on in the South China Sea and how it relates to American-China relations and how it relates to what our, as he calls it, joined at the hip (laughs) uh, uh, Prime Minister uh, is leading us into. China much prefers to engage in bilateral negotiations or multilateral negotiations and that is exactly what it is doing and has been doing for a considerable period of time with some measures of success, particularly with the ASEAN group. The Philippine action against China in respect of the South China Sea was commenced under President Duterte's predecessor, who, like Turnbull, was a loyal acolyte of the American wishes. Duterte has chosen to largely ignore the tribunal's findings and has made a point of seeking to improve relations with the PRC for a whole lot of reasons, not least of all, of course, them being geographical. It's in the Philippines' interest to have 
good relations with the PRC. Tony Cartolucci, in my view, a very good geopolitical analyst based in Bangkok, notes that as Duterte's relations with the US deteriorated and improved with China, ISIS suddenly became a significant problem in the Philippine southern regions that have a strong Muslim component. It's a simmering dispute that's gone on for a couple of hundred years. This is entirely consistent with a pattern that we have seen since at least the 1970s, and in fact is spelled out in a Defence Intelligence Agency strategy paper that was leaked in 2012. Support for terrorist groups is a key element of US strategy in targeted countries. It's also a strategy that Andrew Karibko, who's written extensively in this area, he calls it hybrid wars, has explored in some detail. We see a current example of this in Rakhine State in northern Myanmar. The Chinese are developing a multi-billion dollar economic corridor which incorporates Bangladesh, China, India and Myanmar, leading to a, I'm not sure how you pronounce this, um, Kyogfu uh, is my best stab at the Burmese, special economic zone. It's a $10 billion pipeline that has been built there uh, to bypass the Malacca Strait that I'll come, come to in a, uh, in a moment. What we are seeing, of course, now is a tremendous amount of publicity being given to the plight of the Rohingya Muslim refugees. What we're not told about is that there are also Islamist terrorist groups operating in State, Rakhine State, and it is the reaction to this by the Burmese army that is causing the, refu the civilian refugees to flee the attention is entirely upon the refugees and not upon the cause uh, of them fleeing. Another common accusation levelled against the PRC is that it is militarising the South China Sea by building up atolls into fortified artificial islands. These islands then have the capacity to have missiles installed and other weaponry. That's certainly true. To date, the PRC has constructed eight such fortified atolls. But it is not alone. Other littoral states are doing exactly the same, including Taiwan, Vietnam and the Philippines. Vietnam alone has already constructed seven such artificial military outposts equipped with missiles and other weaponry. There are, at least according to some reports, dozens of these artificial islands that have been built by littoral states to the South China Sea. I've seen a figure of 44. Yet it is the PRC that alone is labelled as aggressive because it is building uh, these artificial islands. A good argument can be constructed, in my view, that China's actions are in fact defensive in nature, rather than a harbinger of threats or to or invasions of neighbouring states. Why might this be so? The outstanding reason is the huge military presence in the region. We heard about yesterday, of course, as well. This did not begin with Obama's pivot to Asia 
something he announced uh, in a, a speech that he gave to the Australian Parliament on the 17th of November uh, 2015, I think it was. As far back as 1866, the US General Sherman forced its way up the Taedong River in Korea in an attempt to forcibly open what was a closed and isolationist state through gunboat diplomacy. A key entry and exit point to the South China Sea is the Malacca Strait. It's that very narrow little bit of uh, water uh, where there's a red star showing Singapore. It's between Malaysia uh, and Sumatra. About $5 trillion worth of world trade passes through this strait every year, mostly to and from China. The trade includes about 80% of China's oil and gas imports and is thus of great strategic importance to the PRC. It's one of the world's seven great choke points. It's only two and a half kilometres wide. And a major American strategic goal is the control of all seven of those choke points. Australia engages in a massive biannual exercise with the Americans called Operation Talisman Sabre. One of the exercise's objectives is to practice blockading the Malacca Strait. This is clearly aimed at depriving China of its oil and gas imports. So much for freedom of navigation. The overwhelming loser of any strictures on trade in the South China Sea would be China itself. I've not heard a single logical argument that explains why the PRC would wish to inhibit the movement of civilian maritime traffic in this vital sea area. China does not like the movement of military vessels through what it says are its territorial waters. It's well settled international maritime law that military vessels acting peaceably may transit territorial waters. That is, any waters within the 12 nautical mile limit, as defined in UNCLOS. The argument, of course, hinges around what constitutes innocent passage. Transit from A to B would not necessarily be a problem, especially as with narrow waterways, encroachment within the 12-mile limit may be unavoidable. It becomes a much more fraught issue when warships repeatedly sail within 12 nautical miles of islands that are the subject of disputed claims. To say that as an exercise in freedom of navigation is nonsense, as legitimate passage is guaranteed under UNCLOS and the PRC has ratified UNCLOS, the United States has not. It's clearly intended as a provocation and hence heightens tensions with their attendant risks more than it helps to resolve the dispute. This is particularly the case as there is not a single instance of China actually impeding the passage of shipping. Australia makes supportive noises about this American activity, but given its own multiple violations of international law, it would be more prudent to keep its mouth shut. There is already in place a means of resolving outstanding issues in the South China Sea, although neither Australia nor the US seem particularly interested in promoting them, and in the case of the Australian media, it barely rates a mention. In November 2002, the 10 ASEAN nations plus China entered an agreement known as the Declaration on the Conduct of the Parties in the South China Sea, DOC for short. 
Since then, there have been 14 meetings of senior officials of the 11 countries concerned. The latest such meeting was held in May of this year when the parties reached an agreement by consensus and announced that they had finalised a code of conduct for the disputed areas of the South China Sea. According to the statement issued after the meeting, all parties agreed, and I quote, to uphold the declaration using the framework of regional rules to manage and control disputes, to deepen practical maritime cooperation, to promote consultation on the code, and jointly maintain the peace and stability of the South China Sea, unquote. Work is continuing on the formulation of the precise rules and regulations that will give details to the broad outline of the agreement. The main question is, what lies behind this American assertion of rights and its challenge to China's activities when manifestly freedom of navigation is not a real issue? And given that the United States has approximately 400 military bases in a wide arc encircling China, as part of its self-proclaimed containment of the PRC, and given that the PRC, unlike the United States, does not engage in continuous warfare around the world, why the provocative and belligerent behaviour? The answer to that question, I suggest, lies in the American reaction to the fundamental changes occurring in the geopolitical structure of the world. Hi, I'm Stuart. Hi, I'm Marita. We are the Orb Weavers, and you're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital radio. And streaming at 3cr.org.au. Yes, you're on 3CR with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast, and we're listening to James O'Neill laying out for us what's going on in diplomatically and within power struggles in relation to the South China Sea, which of course affects us deeply, and uh, and our relationship with uh, America and China and other countries all in between. Now, he finished off, James O'Neill finished off with the tantalising uh, statement that he believed that the reason for why America was uh, lining up the... Uh, uh, the dominoes, as it were, beca- uh, and what the, what their ideas were behind uh, this power struggle uh, was because of uh, changes in the geopolitical scene in the world. And so I had the opportunity to actually chat with him afterwards to try and uh, illuminate what it is he was talking about. Further to your uh, your speech, can you tell me a little bit about uh, what you believe is what uh, the Americans' reaction to the changes in the geopolitical scene? They are reacting. Uh, and yesterday, the, um, one of the speakers talked about uh, Alfred McCoy's timeline of the decline of the American empire. McCoy puts it at 2030. There is a Swedish, well-known Swedish sociologist called Johan Gultung who has developed a, a predictive model of the collapse of empires, which has been very, very effective. He says 2020, <laughs> but whether it's 2020 or 2030 or some point in between, there's a fundamental realignment going on. It's the point, part of my speech I didn't get to this morning was that historically 
China has been the dominant power in the world. The last 300 years have been an aberration. What is happening now is the old order reasserting itself, and we're developing a multipolar world with Russia, China, and the United States, and, and some lesser groupings like the EU and so on. Um, the Americans don't want that to happen. You understand their policies all around the world in terms of fighting against that inevitable change. Yes, yeah, so the, the uh, trying to take over the seven choke points, that's part of it? Yes, yes indeed. The Malacca Straits is obviously a key one from China's point of view. Um, and w- what is happening is that China has, is developing a series of economic corridors. One is the, the China-Pakistan economic corridor, which goes through to Guador on the Indian Ocean. Uh, another one is one that I mentioned this morning, which goes through to the unpronounceable <laughs> Burmese deepwater port. And... and Everywhere that's happening, the United States is creating problems. Uh, Trump made a speech uh, announcing an increase in troops to Afghanistan. The most important part of that speech was he was singing out Pakistan as a future target. And, and that's because of the, uh, the deep water port? In Guador, yes. But it provides China with a access to uh, oil from the Middle East that doesn't have to go through the Malacca Straits. Right. Okay, so pra- practically every uh, hotspot at the moment is actually related to these pipelines. Oh, yes, yes, yes. In fact, um, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., who's the son of the assassinated senator, wrote a very, very interesting article published in Echo Watch magazine uh, in February of last year called Syria, Another Pipeline War. And... Uh, well, well, I don't think that's a sufficient explanation. It's certainly a very big part of what's going on and what's happening with uh, in, in Qatar, for example, with the Syrian, the sorry, the Saudis issued a whole series of demands. The Americans said, "Oh, you're," and it was all tied to Al Jazeera and that sort of stuff. Uh, well, yes, because um, a week before that uh, announcement by the Saudis, the Qataris had signed a fifty billion dollar deal with the Chinese to supply natural gas to, to China and, and even more importantly it wasn't going to be paid for in US dollars yes that's right the demise of the petrodollar Qatar also shares a, a huge gas field, they call it the North Dome field, the Iranians call it the South Pars field it's the same, same field but with a, obviously an international boundary line drawn through the middle of it uh, they were going to cooperate with Iran because that doesn't fit the narrative of this all being a Sunni Shia you know, dogfight. <laughs> so they're actually cooperating. So, again, that was another reason for the Saudis to step in. If the Americans uh, slipped off the uh, greasy pole, as it were, uh, which is one of the signs uh, of moving away from the American dollar, that type of thing, yes. which is a very clear indicator, yes. it won't really change the world per se, it will change America. America basically fights its wars with someone else paying for them. And the petrodollar has been the main medium by which that has been possible because people have to use American dollars in order to pay for petrol and, and gas and so on and so forth, which is a subsidy to the American, American system because they don't have to provide that money. People have to buy U.S. dollars. That provides a continual demand. That was them to run deficits that in the ordinary course of economics. You, you, you know, you can only run a deficit for so long before there's a day of reckoning. 
And this is kind of crazy business about Australia involving itself in uh, the uh, business in Mindanao is really yeah. about the Spratly Islands. Well, it's, it's part of it, yes. It, 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 yes. Yes, Duterte has said, well, hang on, our most important person is that fellow just across the short distance across the South China Sea, i.e. China. They're the country that prepared to put up the money to develop the Philippines, right? Uh, and so he's been making all kinds of positive noises and he totally ignored the finding of the arbitra- arbitration about the South China Sea, as did everybody else, basically, except the Americans <laughs> and the Australians, who are the persons least affected by it. The countries that are involved actually reached an agreement in 2002, and they've just been refining it and refining it with regular meetings ever since. They, of course, know about diplomacy. Well, yes. yes it's, not, it's not part of the lexicon of, of, of the United States. They're they're a rogue nation. I mean, there's no other way of putting it. Thanks very much. You're very welcome. G'day, I'm Warwick Thornton, the writer-director of Samson and Delilah, and you're listening to 3CR. Yes, and you're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and lots of food for thought from James O'Neill. We're going to take you to the... uh, uh, Victorian Trades Hall, where there was a commemoration of the Allende Chile um, events in 1973. <laughs> So we would like to pay first uh, one minute of silence for all those comrades. Creo un minuto de silencio por todos los compañeros y compañeras y después vamos a poner una canción y vamos a poner un pequeño presente acá en la placa de Allende y Víctor Jara. Empezamos entonces un minuto de silencio. Bienvenido a todos. We think it's very important uh, today, it's 44 years after the military coup in Chile. Uh, for us, it's very important and because it's a time to remember and pay tribute to all those people who die, who give their life, you know, to defending the popular government and also after fighting against the dictatorship. And uh, also people under the, this so-called democratic government also have been killed. A lot of people have been killed since 1990, about 30 activists, Chilean activists, and Mapuche activists too have been killed. So still there is uh, Mapuche political prisoners in Chile. And these people who, this, this government who says it's a democratic Government, unfortunately, it's a lot of problems still in Chile, and have been, a, have been a, about 30 years, 27, 28 years after the the end of Pinochet. But uh, then they start the social democratic governments, and as you see today, Chile is uh, one of the so-called paradigma of the neoliberal system in Latin America and in the world, and. But it's a lot of contradiction in Chile. 
that yesterday, yesterday Bachelet, the President Bachelet, receiving La Moneda, the mother of uh, Leopoldo Lopez, who is uh, a guy who's been accused of terrorism in Venezuela. He's been creating a lot of problems in Venezuela. And unfortunately, Bachelet receiving the office is incredible because Venezuela is very close to what happened in Chile uh, in 1973. And for me, it was very, it's a bit, very disappointed that to saw her in a photo with, uh, with these people, you know, these people who are against democracy and, and the progress in Venezuela. But today, so, as I said, as I say again, uh, still in Chile there is about uh, 1,200 uh, uh, disappear people who, who no one knows where they are. Where they are. There's still a lot of problems with the, with human rights uh, situation in Chile. So that's why for us today it's very important to pay this tribute to those people who are still fighting, who all those who give their life. Uh, we have a couple of friends who want to say some words. And can you come? This uh, comrade from uh, Socialist Alternative, uh, what's the name? Claudio. Claudio. Claudio Uribe and. Hey, I'm Claudia, member of Socialist Alternative. Um, my parents are members of the Chilean Communist Party, uh, Frente Patriotico Manuel Rodriguez as well. Um, I was just going to say um, that the lessons that I learned from Chile are uh, uh, lessons that are still continuing today um, that we have to learn, for, learn from. I think the, like, you know, the revolution in Chile is one of the important examples in human history um, alongside places like Russia and Germany where workers um, were beginning to come to power where, like, if you look at, like, industriales, cordones industriales, like, you know, where workers began to take control of the main, main, means of production, where workers began to take control of, um, you know, take destiny into their own hands. A few months ago, I found out that a family member of mine uh, had a father who was uh, disappeared in 1974. He was one of the victims of this, the 119, the Operation Colombo. His picture's down here in the bottom square. And it was a sad occasion, but also a happy occasion, because finally I actually found a, um, a family member who was um, part of the politics that I believe in, because most of my family in Chile are what they call the facho pobre, <laughs> the, the, you know, those people that they're working class but they vote for the right. So in a way it was sad because of the occasion and the fact that she never got to see her father um, grow up, like while she was growing up. And um, so I... Just want to say a few words in his honor. His name, él se llama Ofelio de la Cruz Lazo Lazo. Nacido en el uh, 12 de agosto del año 30 y tenía 43 años a la fecha de su detención. Era casado con familia, dos hijos y era carpintero. Trabajadores al poder, and just a few days ago, we also uh, received a message from the Cuban embassy, and the ambassador said greetings for for today's uh, events. 
and they, they, they say Cuba is a stand with, in solidarity with the Chilean people, the Chilean people are still fighting for real democracy in Chile. And for that, we, are, we have a Marie Delora, who is, she want to say a few words on behalf of the Australia-Cuba-French society. Muchas gracias, Lucho. Y la Asociación Australiana de Amistad con Cuba quiere conmemorar esta fecha también. Uh, and the Australia-Cuba Friendship Society here in Melbourne wants to join with the Chilean community and other people in Melbourne to commemorate um, the 11th of September uh, and not to forget all the extremely courageous Chilean people who fought in Chile and tried to uh, stop the brutal dictatorship that took over in 1973. And um, Fidel Castro, who um, passed away last year, was a great friend of Chile and a great friend of Salvador Allende, who was brutally murdered and during the coup on that 11th of September. And uh, I think that uh, Cuban people have always been with the people of Chile as well, and they would want to send a message of solidarity with the people to the people of Chile on this occasion. I just want to help commemorate this important date and to, to say El Pueblo Unido jamás será vencido. Thank you. Prominence Party of Australia, I'd like to thank LASNET for organising this very important event. The uh, 11th, 11th of September has been taken over by the Americans, like everything else. But the solidarity movement with the Chilean people was one of the cornerstone solidarity events that took over the movement in Australia. When we had that 50th anniversary, we had a, a big event here. And one of those uh, very important aspects of that event was uh, looking back historically at what it contributed to the movement in Australia. Now, of course, one of the most important things was the number of Chilean refugees that had to come to Australia to get away from the oppression of the dictatorship in Chile. And so many lessons were learned. There was many struggles of that time, the South African struggle in solidarity with the South African, the Namibians, then Nicaragua, Salvador. And that built up a very strong understanding about the people's movement and the need for all workers to be involved in the struggle with these people to win their liberation. It's unfortunate that some, especially social democrats, don't learn the lesson of that, don't learn the lesson of struggle and the need to stand with the people, not stand against the people. And we can see that in Chile now, that the social democrats haven't learned the lesson. All they have to do is look around and look at Venezuela and look at Brazil. The, the capitalists aren't interested in being the friend of the people. People can't believe, you know, when we talked about Chile and when you talk about Chile and you talk about these other countries and saying that the, the West won't do it again, that the US imperialists won't do it again, we know that they will. And we know that in Venezuela they've killed 100 people without any apology. And they claim that they are the victims of the people's government in Venezuela. But we know what it is. We know that the terrorist groups being set up in Venezuela and the promotion of Colombia 
and the bases in Colombia are just another example of what they are willing to do to suppress the people. And the thing is, this event is one of the most clear examples of what it means, the unity of the people around the world against those oppressors. And it's very important that we continue to remember that history and remember the significance of that solidarity. And it's amazing that when you go to the trade union movement, which I do a lot of my work in the trade union movement, that you still find, even with people that were never, have never been involved, they still remember the struggle of the Guatemalans. There's not many Guatemalans in Australia, but they remember the struggle, the dirty war in Guatemala, which really continues till now. You know, they, they know, they know the Chilean, when we brought a trade unionist from Chile, they know the Chilean struggle. It's, it's so ingrained. And when it comes to Timor, now, West Papua, there's still a very clear relationship between the workers in Australia and the workers in these countries. And we have to continue to build on that unity. On the weekend, I was at a peace conference a national peace conference, the first one there's been for a long time. There was 150 people at this conference talking about US imperialism and the need to wash US imperialism out of Australia. We're a lackey of that imperialism. We've been in every war. Our, the, the, uh, Malcolm Turnbull has already said we're willing to go into the DPRK, into North Korea, with them to... Do what? Kill the people over there because the American administration has said it's okay to go into a war in North Korea because they're people over there. They're lesser people. So it's okay to do that. Just like it's okay to kill the people in Venezuela, the people in Chile. They're lesser people. They're lesser people because they're American. All we have to do is look at the devastation with the hurricane this week that it's only Florida that's been affected. Forget about all the other countries involved. It's only Florida. But as um, Marie said, in the middle of the devastation, the Cuban people are sending uh, relief crews out to the other Caribbean nations to support them in their time of crisis. Not the Americans. But the Cubans and the Venezuelans are sending crews there. That's what it means to be in solidarity and that's why we need to support events like this because it's so important to remember and continue to build that solidarity and I'm here in solidarity today. Thank you.
A weak solidarity Bricky team listener when US of the UN of the US of the world big supremo Donald Trump or the poor condemned evil North Korea for not only thinking the US are practicing war games aimed at invading North Korea on North Korea's doorstep meant the US have had some not so clandestine plan to invade North Korea but that the evil in North Korea ran to threatening its neighbours including good liberty, freedom and democracy love and South Korea by the treacherous act of being right next door to those it is right next door to. When we totally destroy North Korea, when we wipe evil North Korea off the map, evil North Korea, bad, very bad, the rocket man refuses to guarantee he will contain the nuclear fallout within the North Korean borders or, or what were the North Korean borders. Terrible, terrible. He will threaten his neighbors with nuclear fallout. Evil, very evil. And why do you plan to wipe North Korea off the map with nuclear weapons? To avoid a nuclear holocaust. Too awful to contemplate. Terrible, terrible. Thank goodness Donald got elected or the world would never have known, never have been aware of just how aggressive and dangerous North Korea is. Uh, Peace in our time after you wipe out North Korea, Donald. Peace. Very good. After a little necessary clean-out, after we wipe out evil Iran, evil Cuba, evil Venezuela, peace, freedom of capital, good, very good. Donald also joining all the other peace lovers at the UN of the US of the UN of the world this week kicked off his contribution by informing the UN of it was too bureaucratic. Uh, Which bureaucrats are you talking about, Donald? All the countries which are not the U.S. of. Uh, But they're countries, not bureaucrats. Very bad, terrible. And evil China and evil Russia must lose their right of that thing that allows you to say no. A veto. That's it, vote no. And Britain might elect that Corbyn commie. And France rejected that wonderful Marine La Pen the Paw, so they should lose it too. Dangerous, very dangerous. Uh, leaving the U.S. off. So it would. What do you know? And then we'd have world peace. Good, very good. Fire and fury like the world has never known. Fantastic. If but it were a fantasy. 
Of course, the previous week, as we, as we reported, he stood in front of a coal-fired power station in Dakota and eulogised the fossil industry, declared the North Dakota pipeline open for business and said his thoughts and prayers were with the hurricane victims. Consistency. And this week, his Secretary for Fossils, Scott Puinit, put in charge of the environment protection body he always argued should be disbanded and continually sued for getting in his way between him and the all-important bottom line, said of those insensitive souls who suggested the extreme weather events should raise discussions around climate change, if there is such a thing, now is not the time. That is insensitive. Unfortunately, Scott didn't tell us when it would be the time, when it would be sensitive, but I suspect it's a bit like workers asking for a little pay rise. The time is never right. Now is always not the time. The Spencer Street, no longer Spencer Street, Valfax, claims the lobster with a mobster, state-caring business class supremo and would-be big supremo, Matthew Pay Guy, also charged a developer or two ten grand for an audience, which Matthew Pay denies, and I'm sure you'd agree, listener, we can't imagine why people who could afford it wouldn't pay ten grand not to have to meet him. On leaders, major battle in Canberra continuing between the leader and the would-be leader, with Malcolm being challenged by whom? Yes, the battle between Socialist Party Supremo and would-be Big Supremo Little Billy Shorten Ambition and his challenger for leader of the opposition, former Big Supremo, Tiny a bit more for the bosses. Commentators commented that Tiny is doing a far better job than Little Billy at being opposition leader at making the government feel uncomfortable. Well, if Tiny carries out his threat to oppose a clean energy target to cross the floor, he'll more than likely pass little Billy going the other way. He, Tiny, will be voting in opposition to the government, and it's almost certain little Billy and the Socialists will be voting with the government. After all, little Billy has said the Socialists will accept coal being included in clean energy, while that man of principle, Tiny, has said he will not support any clean energy source other than coal. Speaking of tiny, reverse psychology working well this week with true Blawazi conservatives against bestiality leader and we suspect only member Corgi St. Bernardi doing his bit for girls' education in Africa, attacking a school event hoping to raise about $900 for the cause, wear a skirt day. Gender morphing, Corgi sputtered. Corgi knows girls and boys and teachers in skirts is but a step away. Before we know it, it will be dogs and cats and sheep and, and pigs in skirts accompanied by upskirting. It's disgusting. But it turns out Corgi was practicing reverse psychology, reflecting his support for girls' education in Africa. The $900 target, following Corgi's plea not to donate, morphing into 200 or so grand and rising at last count. By late yesterday, fundraisers were falling over themselves to recruit Corgi. No reverse psychology in another great true blue Aussie who knows same-sex marriage will lead to the end of society as we know it, as we discover just how violent are those who talk about love. Poor Tiny a bit more for the bosses. Head-butted. When we know Tiny is a fan of shirt-fronting. Although Tiny shirt-fronting a Russian male, like 
two randy kangaroos might raise the odd question. Worth checking that out with Corgi. But the same day the Lord Rupert of Wapping giant mind columnist continued his expose after expose of violence by the evil Yes Brigade against the Love Thy Neighbour, unless she or he is the same sex, no brigade, more violence. The ABC describing it as alleged attack, as if there's some doubt, but not Lord Rupert. A bit more for the bus's assault, no alleged, no doubt. Because only the most cynical would suggest all these examples of violence by the evil destroy society as we know it, yes, brigade, are very timely. A perfect fit into the no campaign logic of raising everything but the actual issue. Just wish someone in all the condemnations attacks at how evil the yes people are from the no lot and apologies from the yes campaign and its supporters like little Billy, someone would toss in the phrase, if it was a real yes campaigner. Apart from the violence, one of our very favourite politicians, Erica Betts on the bosses, is upset that this civilization-destroying marriage equality business, and doesn't Eric know that's a misnomer, equality, business will destroy religious freedom. People must be free to follow their beliefs in a free democratic society. Uh, so same-sex couples must be free to marry then. Let me uh, rephrase that. Uh, good Christian followers of the dear baby Jesus must be free to follow their beliefs in a free democratic society. And on the point that such freedoms will be addressed following their 120 mil survey, Eric said he didn't trust politicians. Great self-awareness, Eric. Insight. After all, it was a politician who took away my highly paid ministerial position. And we're spending the 122 and rising, Eric, because you say Parliament should not vote on the issue. Oppose Parliament voting on the issue. Exactly. Uh, we must listen to the uh, true Blue Aussie people. Uh, and if they vote yes, uh, then Parliament will uh, vote on the issue. And if the people vote yes, I will uh, vote no. See, see, the witch bank, which used to be our bank, has flogged off its insurance arm, which made the news recently for all the wrong reasons. Uh, how did you make it so profitable? The new owner sought a few clues. Simple. Reject every claim. Uh, but there must be some genuine claims. All of them, we think, but act of God and page after page of ambiguous small print can work wonders in getting around that problem. In the week that was sport, at today's final, attracting a predicted 90 or so thousand fans and corporate hangers-on, fully 1,400 of the 90,000 will be supporting the artificial AFL marketing exercise Make Believe Lot from Western Sydney, where the new team and its great traditions have so captured the public imagination, its home final last week attracted the lowest finals crowd anywhere for more than 100 years, when World War One affected the crowds. Its president, uh, its president was asked uh, yesterday on radio, only about 1,400 tickets. Does that worry you? No, that's our entire supporter base. Finally, we are often reluctantly forced to highlight just how evil 
evil unions are. Evil, evil, evil. So it's refreshing when we can report a good union. Good, good, good. Like the Shopping the Workers Union. Doing a win-win deal with caring employers including salt, sugar and fat franchise McDonald's where they agreed to an enterprise agreement over and above the award. Well, more correctly, under and below the award. Young workers at weekends paid $5 an hour less than the award, or about seventeen dollars to $1,800 a year down the gurgler, along with their union fees. See, that's the win-win. The union gets a few million a year in union fees for working its guts out to make sure the workers get below award rates. And the deal makes it compulsory for the union to be present at induction days to make sure it gets its millions. See? Win-win. Well, win-win-lose, but McDonald's and the good, good, good union aren't in the third category, and thanks to the good, good, good union, the young workers will receive a positive lesson about joining a union when they move on. It'll make, make them think twice about joining an evil union. Good morning. 3CR is actively advocating for equality in the lead-up to the National Postal Survey on same-sex marriage. As such, we will not give airtime to the No campaign on the basis that it is prejudiced, homophobic and harmful to LGBTIQ people and our families. Our community may hold different views on marriage as an institution, yet we agree this postal survey is a political stunt designed to appease prejudiced and homophobic views. 3CR will continue to advocate for equality in all areas. At this particular time in our political climate, we need to ensure that our members, friends and colleagues know that 3CR is a safe space for all our community. You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and if we have to tell you about the Melbourne's big kid-friendly marriage equality picnic which is on at 10am tomorrow, 24th of September, Sunday. This is in Melbourne, Treasury Gardens in Melbourne. If you want to know more about it, if you're not just going to turn up, which you could easily do, 10am Sunday, 24th of September, Treasury Gardens for a big kid-friendly marriage equality picnic. Uh, you can go to hashtag equality picnic or hashtag vote yes to get more information. And uh, the other big, we've only got a certain amount of time left for Solidarity Breakfast this morning. And so the big news, of course, is what's happening in Barcelona. 41 Spanish Civil Guard raids on Catalonian government related buildings, uh, September the 20th. And on private homes, harvested 13 high-level Catalan government officials and a lot of suspect material in inverted commas for the prosecutors charged with stopping Catalonia's October the 1st independence referendum if you haven't been keeping abreast of what's going on. Uh, as a, a huge amounts of people have turned up in the streets now and uh, one typical comment from young people was to the effect that our grandparents didn't suffer under Fran- Francoism so that we would let it reappear. Anyway, on Friday breakfast, uh, they had a great interview with T- uh, Dick Nickel, who lives in Barcelona and is the uh, 
uh, Green Left Weekly's uh, European correspondent. Uh, so Lalitha Shataya was having a chat with him. So we've got an excerpt from that interview. Well, what is what is happening now as we're talking is that the Spanish state in the form of the civil guard ordered by a judge is uh, has occupied all the main ministries in, of the Catalan government in Barcelona. And they have also arrested 12 uh, senior officials of the Catalan government. And so, and there is a reaction to that by the people in the streets. Obviously, there's demonstrations taking place outside all these these ministries. This is the culminating point of the offensive launched by the um, Spanish government. Ever since uh, on the September the sixth, the Catalan government, uh, the Catalan Parliament, adopted its referendum law, which was the enabling law and the law which would cover the referendum, which is set for October the first, which the Spanish government is determined to stop. Uh, the Spanish government is painting this as a undemocratic revolt, um, as breaking the, uh, constitu- the Spanish constitution, uh, and basically what you, what you've got is a kind of uh, democratic rebellion in Catalonia, uh, which is growing uh, as we speak. Um, What will happen now, we don't know. The Catalan government is meeting. Uh, If the Spanish government is going to keep following this course, they're going to have to start arresting the Catalan government. They're going to have to close down Catalan uh, television and radio. They're going to have to, you know, finally sort of carry out the whole uh, box and dice of a uh, state of siege, state of exception. Uh, And that's what it looks like is happening now. Uh, All this has been broadcast live on Catalan uh, public uh, television, uh, but of course the Spanish state may decide that uh, Catalan public television has to go off air. I wouldn't be surprised at all. Mm. I mean, it's it's hard to, to exactly hone in on to one particular area, but what? How is the uh, reaction from the Catalan people? I know they're, they're demonstrating in front of um, uh, the ministries that have been occupied by the government. Uh, are there any? Is there any violence? Is there any um, well, how no, to move? There's no violence because this movement is determined not to be violent and uh, violence would be the perfect excuse that the Spanish state would, would, would want in order to justify a military to actually send in, send in the troops or send in you know, more of the civil guard. So the tactics of the movement are very uh, intelligent, which is mass demonstrations uh, and outside of the, um, the centres of where these occupations are taking place. Uh, And then uh, we'll see what the government calls for, but I imagine we'll be having a huge demonstration, a series of demonstrations uh, in Barcelona and in the whole whole of of Catalonia soon, and that that will be news all around the world. So the, the, the point will be to make the political price of this for the Spanish government as high as possible. Whether or not it is possible under these circumstances to go ahead with the referendum uh, looks pretty unlikely, but I don't know that. The Catalan government says they've got plan B, plan C, plan D. Um, But I would have thought just by the the actions of the Spanish government that they're prepared to do anything to stop the referendum taking place on October the 1. October 1, we hear all sorts of rumours of what, what substance there is to them, I don't know. But one of the rumours is that they've got 4,000 
uh, police lined up to send into Catalonia to uh, occupy polling stations if things get to that point. Um, the point, of course, for Democrats and for people who are supporting the right of Catalonia to self-determination is to make this the price of this, the political price of this, uh, as big as possible. There's already signs of that. Yesterday, the uh, new right uh, hipster party, Citizens, the cool party, put a motion to the Congress, the Spanish Congress, uh, of support for what the government's tactics were, the, the uh, popular People's Party government's tactics, the Rajoy government's tactics were. And the Socialist Party, which has generally supported or has supported uh, these tactics today, voted against it so that this actual motion went down. Uh, within the Socialist Party, that caused ructions and because three of their most uh, pro-Spanish uh, Spanish centralism uh, people abstained, so you can you can start to, you can start to see the political fault lines developing, um, and I can't see that that won't continue. Just wondering, what sort of support um, does the independence movement have across the nation, across Spain by itself? Uh, the in, by, uh, Catalonia itself is divided on the question of independence. The irony of all of this is, if they if they'd had if the Spanish state and Spanish centralism, which is really a continuation of the Francoist mentality of Spain is one great and free, and it's, you know, it will not be divided, indivisible, that's the magic word. Uh, if that mentality had, a, that mentality prevented uh, Spanish ruling elites from accepting a Scottish-style referendum here. Uh, if there had been a Scottish-style referendum, it's highly likely, in my opinion, though other people would disagree, that uh, the independence position would not have won because there's a lot of people who want a different relation between Catalonia and the Spanish state, but they don't necessarily want independence. Mm. Um, but what has happened because of the intransigence of the Spanish state, the pro-independence feeling is growing and all polls are showing um, that you know it's closer to closer and closer to 50% and above 50%. Uh, and if this referendum goes ahead, if it, if it goes ahead, there will be a clear majority for independence because a lot of the people who are opposed to it will boycott, won't vote. Um, so, and this is another reason why the Spanish government had to apply these tactics. They had no, having said we're not going to negotiate with you about referendum, that's illegal, that's unconstitutional, then they have to do this. They have to apply these semi-military coup d'etat tactics. Yeah, so is, is this the application of the 155 um, of the uh, the article in um, the Spanish constitution? Would that be um, what they're doing? Well, they haven't. No, that's what they're doing that de facto. Oh, okay. what, this is, what, they, what they've avoided is any, <clears throat> really as much as possible, any debate in Parliament to get actually apply uh, Article 155, which is suspends uh, regional governments. Mm. And, and that to actually apply that, you have to have a debate in the Senate uh, and you have to have that agreed to. Uh, now, the PP's got a majority in the Senate, so that wouldn't be a problem. But, the, of course, the more debate there is the more the political prices that they will pay. The mm. more people wake up, even in the Spanish state, to what's going on. Mm. So, yes, that's... So what they've done is they've done this in the most... Sneaky uh, way, really. Sneak, sneakiest possible way. They've worked all that out. 
the cleverest in inverted commas way. But it will all come back to bite them because mm. uh, – uh, and that, that will depend, of course, on the strength of the reaction here. But I can't imagine it won't be immense. I just can't imagine it. Uh, the atmosphere here is of loathing towards the Spanish state. Um, when they, if they call a demonstration here in the, for the next weekend or whenever, it will be absolutely immense. Mm. Uh, and it, it will be a demonstration of the complete divorce and the complete alienation of Catalonia, the majority of people in Catalonia. Because we're talking here not just about pro-independence people, but also people who think there should be a referendum, which is up, up to 80% of the, uh, of the population. So you've got 80% support for having a referendum to decide the question of once and for all in Scottish style or Quebec style. Um, that includes, let's say, 45 to 50% pro-independence. But then you've got another 25, 30, 35% of people who want a federal Spain, a confederal Spain, mm. um, and they are also on side in this. So basically what you have in Catalonia now is... 20, 25% of the population, which is just feels Spanish and will support whatever the Spanish government does, um, and they're the people who vote for the Popular Party, vote for citizens. Uh, some of them vote for the Socialist Party, but not all the Socialist Party vote is like that. Mm. Uh, and then you've got the 75, 80% of the population who are for a democratic referendum. Yep. And that, it, sorry, I'll, no, no, I'll stop on. there. No, I was just going to say that that is now spreading the idea of Spain as a plurinational country which has to work out how, if at all, all its peoples fit together uh, and that has to be on the basis of the right to decide, i.e. it can't be decided from above, it has to be decided by vote of the peoples. Uh, that is growing. So and that is one of the reasons Podemos gets 20% of the vote. Not the only reason, maybe not even the main reason. But Podemos's position that Spain is a uh, plurinational state, um, that it should be, all the relations between the nations should be re reconfigured and that the nations one by one, uh, starting with the Catalans obviously, should vote on how they want to relate to that state. If they want to leave, we don't want that to happen, but they've got the right to leave, which is you know, recognition of the right to self-determination. So, um, so it wasn't so true that Podemos initially didn't support the referendum? Podemos didn't support the referendum as a binding referendum. They supported it as a mobilisation against the PP and in support of, of, of the Catalan right to decide and Catalan sovereignty. So they said the... And there's an element of truth in this, that the, this is the way this referendum was called, left... The, um, a lot of people who are, don't want to leave the Spanish state, mm. people who feel more Spanish than Catalan or feel Spanish, uh, they felt that this referendum was, uh, you know, being a unilateral referendum, not being agreed with the Spanish state, was being forced down their throats. Uh, and so that there would be, you know, an abstention. If this whole, if this happens, there'll be a, an abstention rate of, you know, I don't know, 35 to 45%. So that would be an expression of people's uh, disaffection uh, of elements of the society, and especially work, uh, most working class or some of the most working class elements in the society are people who've migrated into Catalonia from other parts of Spain in the past. So, you know, there's this discussion about what 
else could this referendum have been called better? Uh, could the referendum campaign have been better? Uh, that's all a big discussion here. Mm. Uh, but it's all, uh, it's all you know, hypothetical now. And basically, if you want, my position is, you know, there was not, they could have done some things better, but this is basically what had to happen. Well, they've declared war, really. But if they were smart, as I mean, according to your analysis, if the people of Catalan were divided already on the uh, relationship they want to have with Spain, the referendum wouldn't have given them anything terribly disappointing, would, would it? No, that was the way to solve it. Yeah, and 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 just, it seems that's a bit exactly foolish. Just as in Scotland. Just as in Scotland. Yes, but that's what people don't understand. You say, why didn't the Spanish state? Agree to a referendum. Yeah, why didn't they do that? Well, that is simply a question that asks you to understand uh, what the Spanish state is, which is a continuation of um, the Francoist dictatorship yeah. and the attitudes, the attitudes of the Francoist dictatorship. So now here's Mariano Rajoy on television in front of me now talking about we are supporting the constitution. We are supporting the law against the outlaws. Uh, but, of course, the law, the real determinant here is, the, is going to be the level of resistance yes. uh, in, in, in Catalonia. And, uh, well, we'll see. But I can't imagine that it won't be huge. Just going, I mean, just this morning, people were just stopping me in the street because everybody's following this on their mobile phones, you know, in direct. You know, they're just saying, well, you know, let, let's go. Let's get go there. Well, he's, he's on television now. There's a photo of the uh, crowd outside the Ministry of uh, of Economy, the, the Finance Ministry. It's just it's growing bigger and bigger. It's huge. So, yeah, that's that's where we're at. I think 3CR is the voice of the people, speaking back to the establishment and telling them what they think, and sometimes it's something they don't want to hear. Well, that's it for Solidarity Breakfast this morning. We uh, had a very interesting conversation or uh, breakdown of what's going on in the uh, Chinese, uh, China, uh, South China Sea with James O'Neill, former academic and consultant at the UN Economic Commission for Europe. We went on to commemorate the Allende uh, demise, September the 11th, 1973, not never to be forgotten. We went on to this is the uh, week that was lucky we got the right one and uh, we've uh, followed up with uh, what's going on in Catalonia. Uh, we're going to go out with Lily Marlene Kate Purcell singing and uh, up next is Asia Pacific Currents. <laughs> By the barricade Darling, I remember The way you used to wait Was there that you whispered Tenderly That you loved me You'd always be My Yeah. 
Listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.